the good thing about Lash he makes there, which actually is a great critique for the, like, as a socialist, what would you do? Where he says that the, you know, you don't ask, instead of asking, like, what, what will this politics do for me? You say, you ask, is this politics me? You know, is this my type of politics and evaluating mm. things? So, like, does this fit mm. my identity, my idea of my personal style? Yeah, it's a really good Yeah, point, no. Uh, do you guys do you guys mind if i it's insanely hot do you guys mind if i take off my shirt <laughs> i know that it's just you have to take well, the I'm shirt gonna off. Do it. i'm gonna do it you have to take it off slowly this is not narcissistic this is just very <laughs> self-interested it's camboy yeah. you're a camboy yeah well you know it's funny because like the whole camboy thing camboy cam you know the, the kind of online virtual semi-prostitution cam thing person. that goes on yeah only fans <laughs> it's almost like you know because because Lash makes a point about the figure, the archetype of contemporary society being the prostitute, not the salesman or anything else, but it's a prostitute, you know, who take, does hedonism, but without any actual pleasure in it, um, just as a purely mm. contractual exchange. Um, and, it, you know, purely narcissistic. And it's like, you know, it's almost like they, they people read Lash and, you know, Lash at the time in the 70s going, mm, this is a really, you know, kind of like, uh, fine-grained analysis of something that's emerging and then like contemporary society comes along and goes boom that's what we're doing <laughs> yeah exactly that's a good it's a good idea well yeah we'll, we'll we'll take that under advisement and maybe maybe go for it, it took, yeah took it as a manual took it as a manual yeah. for living hello listeners welcome Welcome back to Alpha Bunga Bunga. This is a reading club um, for our dearest patrons. Uh, great to have you with us once again. Um, and today we're going to be discussing Christopher Lash's The Culture of Narcissism. And without further ado, I will pass over to George, who is going to introduce it because he's the one who's produced this one. Uh, yeah, thanks. Um, so yeah, as as you said, today we're discussing Christopher Lash and specifically the culture of narcissism, American life in an age of diminishing expectations, which um, I think we'd all agree is a classic of cultural criticism and social theory, um, originally from 1979. Um, and perhaps the subtitle is particularly relevant as we look forward to the Biden presidency. Um, so yeah, just maybe to give a bit of context around the way that Lash understands narcissism and how Maybe that's different to the way that it's understood today. I think the idea of narcissism as a political category is probably most commonly applied to the person of uh, Donald J. Trump and basically a way to pathologize his um, behavior, often through a kind of medicalized model, this idea of narcissistic personality disorder, um, which actually is defined in the DSM on, on the following terms and just to make it clear lash doesn't take this route this isn't based in freud analysis but we thought this might be or i thought this might be useful for everybody to hear um, um a pervasive pattern of grandiosity this is the definition in fantasy or behavior the need for admiration lack of empathy beginning by early adulthood and present in a variety of contexts as indicated by five or more of the following a grandiose sense of self-importance preoccupation with fantasies of unlimited power, beauty, brilliance, or love, a belief that he or she is special or unique and can only be understood by other special people, a requirement, for, you, George. A, a requirement for excessive admiration, a sense of entitlement, yep. for example, interrupting somebody, you might say when they're giving a <laughs> definition, being interpersonally exploitative, a lack of empathy, 
a surplus of envy or the belief that others are envious and or arrogant, haughty behaviours or attitudes. So Everyone is jealous of ABB, all the other podcasters. <laughs> so you may or may not recognise some of these uh, traits in yourself or your friends or family members or colleagues. Um, but yeah, just to say this isn't really the, the way that Lash approaches it, but it is probably worth noting that scores on... Um, Statistic Personality Inventory, which is closely related, which measures normal or subclinical narcissism, have been increasing since its creation, incidentally, in 1979, which, of course, is the day of publication of Culture of Narcissism. Um, and so I think that, you know, to, to approach this from, you know, to narrow in onto the onto the text a little bit in terms of um, the cultural understanding of narcissism, you have almost unlimited conservative think pieces on the danger of selfie culture, self-obsession, especially amongst the despised millennials and even uh, more despised Zoomers. Um, and obviously being diligent and, and, and doing research beyond the book for this episode, um, I found, or I didn't, I found that somebody else had found um, that there's been a 42% increase in the use of I and me in American novels and nonfiction since 1960 and a 10% decrease in the use of us and we. But interestingly, the use of you and your has quadrupled. So people are talking more about I and me, you and your, and less about uh, us and we. There's no data on the numbers of young men falling in love with their own reflections in pools and turning into flowers, but um, it's probably, it would be a small number anyhow. Um, Happens to the best of in us terms of, Yeah, <laughs> that's, a, I, I, that's a bit of a... A bit of a nerdy joke, but I, I thought it was quite funny when I when I wrote it down. But I probably <laughs> that's just delivered it with a bit more conviction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, particularly for me. Um, so, in terms of the text, so to move on to this, and um, yeah, I think it is. A, I, I really um, enjoyed rereading it, um, and I think it's a it is a great book, and I re really would recommend it. Um, so Lash wrote this in the late 70s, which Tom Wolfe had already characterised as the me decade in a New Yorker piece in 76, um, as a contrast to the social concerns of the 60s. In retrospect, of course, it isn't clear that the 60s were in fact, a, sorry, in retrospect, it's probably is clear that the 60s were a bit more self-centred um, than this, than the 70s saw them as. That's probably a different discussion. And Lash himself was an interesting character and the author of a number of other books that I think people seem to be picking up um again now uh on the left and elsewhere not least the revolt of the elite and the portrayal of democracy so yeah um any any sort of contextual points general comments on on this text before we we dig into into it a bit more in detail yeah i just had a couple of points that i mean firstly what we want to set out to do here is not necessarily do a close reading of the text as if it were a newly published piece because it's obvious that it's been greatly discussed over a number of years. It's seen a revival recently. So I think what will be interesting is to situate the text historically as we're now, uh, what is that, 40 years on from it? Is that right? I can, I'm, I, it's always that thing where you realize it's 2020 and it's, anyway, I think that's right. Yeah, 21 years on from, yeah. 41 years on from publication. Um, so we can situate it historically and also look at whether it still applies to our times, whether even maybe the tone of it it has would it would have changed if you were to write that same book today? Would you what would you say? Um, you know, would it take the same tone? Would it 
seize on different examples? Would it would it, would its thesis hold up or you know be be confirmed? I mean, I think we'd all agree that it's been confirmed to a large degree, um, probably overly so, um, and that's maybe why it's seen such a revival because everyone I can read it and doesn't even need to think too hard about examples. It just smacks you right in the face. Um, so I think there's I think there's that I think that there's just a couple of other points that I wanted to make that he's writing this at the end of the 70s, and although Lash is kind of he, he makes some sideswipes at this journalistic idea that each decade needs to have its kind of theme, right? That the 60s was revolt and 70s was the me generation. And then obviously later the 80s was the self-interested yuppie decade and, and so on. Um, what was what was the 90s? Well, it, what was the 80s 90s? Because I guess the 90s is was... the whatever is the whatever one, right? But it's also... <laughs> the 90s was the end of history, Jesus. Oh, yeah. Brit, yeah, but that's not a, but, yeah, but that's not a vibe. It's not the end of history isn't like... You know, a, a we just wrote a book out about it. To buy. <laughs> what are you talking about? Well, but there's more That's detail the in there, and you'll the have book. to and you'll have to buy the book. The end of history <laughs> is a vibe. <laughs> That's that. Yeah. That's yeah. not. There's, there is more in the book than that. To be fair. Um, yes. So, um, but I think there's also the experience of the post '60s sort of disappointment and breakdown of an order, not the neoliberal order as we're used to talking about, but the breakdown of the Keynesian Fordist order. And that's maybe why it also, in a, in the sen- in the feel of it, it feels very close to us right now. I mean, that's my take, because he's writing just as Thatcher and Reagan are about to take power, right? Um, and the, the whole neoliberal counter-revolution is about to happen. So it, that sense of like an ending, which he says is pervasive across modernity, which is definitely true, was probably particularly acute at the end of the 1970s, a sense that things couldn't carry on as Mm. they were. Um, And we're in a very similar period. Yeah, I think it's important that we read this book sort of in some ways narcissistically, like from my point of view, what's this got (laughs) to do with me? You know, what's what's in it for me to to read this book? Um, I don't know, Phil, if you if you had anything. Yeah, well, I mean, kind of. you know, I would, uh, I mean, to echo what's been said already, the thing I would add, I suppose, was that I, um, when I reread it for this reading club, I thought back to when I first read it. And um, I remember or recalled rather that on Ponry reading it now that when I read it originally, I kind of raided it for the purposes of, um, this was when I was an undergraduate, and I kind of raided it for the purposes of, you know, some social theory essay or other at university. And I didn't really get much from it, is the truth at the time. I knew it had this great reputation, which I didn't gainsay at the time because I didn't feel um, confident enough to do so. But I was trying to recall why I, why I didn't, um, you know, uh, kind of um, get much from it back then compared to now, because rereading it now is just, um, it's astoundingly, it seems, you know, it's astoundingly insightful and um, effective in its arguments. So, and I was thinking about this and actually, so it was a tweet by Catherine Liu, a friend of the podcast, who maybe um, put me onto it, when she said something she's noticed among her students is a resistance, in fact, to um, critical theory and particularly when in fact, a kind of a very typically Freudian resistance to Freudian ideas themselves. And I thought that was, um, it was really striking and insightful. And I think that's exactly, um, that was exactly what was going on. I was, um, the truth is I was kind of repulsed by um, the Freudian kind of analysis, the Freudian categories, um, which I didn't, not only did I not kind of um, feel that I understood them, but also that they are, um, 
they are strange. They are genuinely strange and disturbing in some respects. You know, I mean, that is part of their um, that is part of their you know the purpose of them. Um, and so I think this is what this is what um, made me resistant to the text that I was um, I was reluctant to accept the insights provided by a Freudian psychoanalytic approach. And yeah, um, I think that probably speaks. What, what do you think that What do you think that that says about about you? What do you think that means? Well, I'm not going to give you a narcissistic. These, um... I'm not going to give you a narcissistic account. <laughs> Lay down I mean, right here, Phil. Why do you just I'm <laughs> say whatever comes to your mind? Don't don't hold back. <laughs> so I'm agreeing with Catherine um, that I think there is a kind of there is, uh, um, and perhaps it is indeed a facet of the culture of narcissism that there is a resistance to Freudian psychoanalysis. And I mean, it's a point which Ajijek has also made, that some of the great kind of insights of um, Freudianism have been abandoned or retreated from, um, such as, you know, we've, uh, recon we've reconstituted the idea of childhood innocence, for instance, um, which was precisely one of the things that Freud overthrew. Um, so anyway, I mean, it's only to say that I think the um, that I partook in that kind of um, general suspicion and hostility to Freudian ideas. Um, and that this shaped the way in which I understood and received the book. And I like to think, I hope that um, I've uh, gotten past it and was able to reread it with fresh eyes and take more from it this time around. Yeah. I mean, uh, it is one of those, I mean, that's maybe one of the definitions of a, of a classic that you go, you want to reread it. I think Sontag said literature is a book you read five times. Um, I haven't read this five times, I should say. Um, but you go back to reread it and you get something new, new from it. And that's either because it's so generative or you have new new eyes. Um, so, yeah, just to just to, to, to point listeners um, to previous discussion we've had about uh, Christopher Lash, which was 128 episode number uh, called Backlash with Anna Katchen. Um, and there we were talking a little bit about some of the culturally conservative critics of capitalism uh, beyond Lash as well. So, yeah, to get on to the discussion, I think this is, a, you know, it's a it's a book with a load of ideas. So what I've tried to do is narrow it down to three themes, um, rule of three, not one theme for each, each of us, but just all the themes for us to discuss. And the first one is the exhaustion of bourgeois society. And I think this is the, the starting point um, of his account. And maybe that's one of the reasons why it feels so resonant today is the starting point is exhaustion and a running out of, of ideas. Um, and so, on page one and this is you know this i obviously read past past page one but this is a quote from page one uh, bourgeois so bourgeois society seems everywhere to have used up its store of constructive ideas it has lost both the capacity and the will to confront the difficulties difficulties that threaten to overwhelm it and lash kind of unpacks this by saying there's a political crisis of capitalism which reflects a general crisis of western culture um, and there's despair of understanding the course of modern history or subjecting it to rational direction. Liberalism is intellectually and politically bankrupt. The human sciences have been defeated. Economics cannot explain, um, in Lash's framing, the existence, the coexistence of unemployment and inflation. Sociology cannot provide general, a general theory of society. Psychology retreats from Freud to the measurement of trivia. Um, natural sciences previously made these exaggerated claims to themselves, but now hasten to announce science has no miracle cures at the same time perhaps today is people saying you know i fucking love science and and, and having a an attachment to the to the idea of it um literary theory treats texts of reflections of artists in a states of mind rather than representative of the real world 
and there's a pervasive distrust of those in power. Um, and this has made society increasingly difficult to govern alongside a distrust of experts. This is all from the 1979 text. This is, you know, it's quite striking that all these things on a certain reading seem so present to me. And overall, there's a state of profound cultural pessimism and apathy alongside a collapse of authority and a flight from politics. So that's the starting point. Do, do we agree with this as a characterization, either for 1979 or, or for today? Um, I think that if you were to draw up a list of cultural exhaustion, and of course you'd have to, because I don't think any of us disagree with the overall diagnosis, the list would look a little bit different. Um, the fact that liberalism is intellectually and politically bankrupt, I think, you know, is even more so. The idea that the human sides have been defeated, yes, I mean, there's many critiques that one can make of contemporary economics, though it's interesting that, of course, what was of concern then was the coexistence of unemployment and inflation, of stagflation, um, and of course, it would be rather different. But of course, that was a crisis of, again, like the Fordist Keynesian model, and today it's a crisis of neoliberalism. So again, economics can't explain, but you had a, a kind of interval in which neoliberalism did lead to a kind of sort of various mini smaller booms, I suppose. Um, and in terms of the natural sciences, I mean, it, obviously, you know, there's many things to be criticized about the lack of innovation in modern society, the idea that, you know, we're just sold new gadgets for different ways to talk to each other, or to change your face and make you look like you have a mustache when you don't and vice versa. But that real breakthroughs in, for example, um, you know, transport technologies ha are, haven't happened. But, you know, we're also living in the year in which vaccines, not just one, but several have been developed and are proven to be efficacious in the fastest turnaround that's ever been done, which is a remarkable achievement. And I think that probably casts light, uh, casts a shadow rather, on the rest of human endeavors in, in, this, in the natural sciences, um, or maybe not in the natural sciences, but certainly like in, in technology, because if that was possible with a vaccine, it took this, you know, overwhelming crisis of the pandemic to drive that. Um, and I think the fact that we can really only point to adva massive advances in the medical sciences in recent years, um, as, a, as, a, as examples of the fact that society might still be progressing, uh, casts a shadow on, on all the rest of human endeavor. Yeah, I would, um, I suppose I would say one thing that strikes me is about the so it's frequently seen as prescient, you know, so the way like it's been picked up on by so many by kind of um, lashy and leftist so-called, um, including some friends of the pod, Anna Kachian and Angela Nagel, for instance, um, as well as uh, Lash being picked up by some kind of neo-communitarian thinkers such as uh, Eric Kaufman um, or Matt Goodwin. Um, and often it's cast in the frame of being prescient, but I think um, it's more stagnation because Lash is very clearly talking about his own time and the fact that there's so much, um, you know, the fact that there's so much continuity in what he's identified with the current, with our own current time suggests to me um, that, um, you know, indeed, as he suggests himself, that society is um, profoundly stagnant. And some of the other, I mean, elements, which I think are kind of... Um, uh, some of the differences. I mean, I don't know how significant they are ultimately, but one of the things he identifies is inflation, right? As Alex mentioned, I mean, he identifies inflation as one of the characteristics of his own era that erodes um, erodes the kind of sense of financial security among the middle classes and their capacity to um, store up for the future. And interestingly, it's kind of the inverse on that. So I was kind of trying to pay attention to things that are different between then and now. 
when he was writing. And one of the things is uh, the inverse that there's very low interest rates. So, but the effect is the same. There's no finance, you know, there's less mm-hmm. financial security as a result. And there is still no kind of, you're still disincentivized from um, saving up for the future, right? You still kind of lack the financial security of having, um, of having stable um, savings that are growing as you get older. So um, anyway, I thought it was a, it was a kind of a, I think, you know, the, we live in the same era essentially with some significant differences, but um, ones that ultimately seem to parlay into the same effects. Well, there's something then that needs explaining um, <clears throat> in one sense, which is why has there been a continual, a, a process of um, stagnation from 1979 to today? Like how has the exhaustion not reached some sort of level where it's it's re- been reversed or there has been a countervailing tendency of some sort? And I guess one of the points that might be suggested or one of the factors that might be thought to be relied upon to get us out of this um, sort of using up of store of constructive ideas is is technology. Um, and I think this is, <clears throat> you know, it's, it, it's sort of the last resort of the of a, of a kind of um, struggling elite to say, well, we have these um, technological fixes which can lift us out, which can provide new ideas, new ways of living, even if the ways of living, i.e. renting everything, owning nothing, um, are not particularly appealing. At least there isn't there isn't a forward um, <clears throat> something which is giving forward motion to society. But that hasn't really materialized. That hasn't technology hasn't really come about to to save bourgeois society in in that sense, I wouldn't say. No, that's right. I mean, I think the dependence on technology, the reliance on technology as a political solution, um, as a, you know, that politicians have recourse to it, a social solution, as also socially as the horizon of our expectation, is not only um, indication of general social stagnation, but also on one hand is untrue because the technology doesn't really promise and it certainly hasn't d- delivered any significant increase in productivity in the way that was expected. Um, it's a 40 years of the internet and it's certainly 30 years and that hasn't delivered the productivity gains that were expected. Um, and it's also come to be an increasingly oppressive force. I think, you know, all generations and kind of leap forwards in technology have elements of a sense of being oppressed by technology of being bereft because it takes away different forms of life that you previously knew. But now I like the example that you gave, George, because it's like, oh, in the future, you won't own anything. You'll just rent things. I mean, that's the conservatives critique of communism made manifest. You know, the conservative fear of communism where no one will have, you know, when they're like, oh, they're going to come for your toothbrush or the communists are going to come for your toothbrush because you won't have any personal possessions because, of course, the conservatives yes, understand the, the lack of private property as lack of personal possessions, lack of personal belongings. Um, that's the vision that technolo- technologically enabled capitalism has for us. That's a vision that it, that it portrays. And it's not it doesn't even promise a big leap in productivity because what it actually is, is, is rent seeking. So it substitutes things yeah, that you're currently able to buy for for rent seeking. It's the abolition of private property by liberalism, not by communism. Right. So, yeah, um, undergirded not by an increase in productivity, but by um, extraordinary wage suppression and, and exploitation, and so on and so forth. But I think the one thing to to add, I think we might have exhausted this point about exhaustion. One thing, or maybe a couple of things to add. I'll abuse my position as being like the, the chair or the host or whatever. 
The first is that what I think cultural exhaustion looks like today, and we've talked about this previously, is this idea of retromania or repetition. Um, to take films, for example, just the endless fucking superhero sequels, 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 um, and no new ideas. The you know every single narrative being dragged past the point of of finishing just to just to keep it going and sucking out the the, the maximum possible amount of um, of revenue and also um, viewers from from any any possible storyline. Um, so that'll be the, the first point. The other is the other point is, I think there is something here, maybe not a discussion for this this time, but something that I thought about when reading this was there's a good there's a question here about what you know what would it mean if you know bourgeois society is exhausted, capitalism is no longer progressive, the bourgeoisie steps away from playing historically a most revolutionary part. What does this mean for you know for 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 politics because there's no longer that that is that the case there's no longer that forward motion of 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 you know com- competing classes um there's no longer the possibility i think and there's a a recent a recent book on this if what happens if you take away the possibility of of communism how does that um that challenge and that motor force um what happens if you if you don't have that within a capitalist society you will see a, a certain amount of, of stagnation on a number of levels so if that's the first theme the second one is the narcissist as an individual um and sorry to keep talking at you but there's a couple of good quotes here um just to just to to frame it what is the narcissistic personality what does this culture mean for for the individual and how it's experienced so Lash says the culture of competitive not, uh, individualism, which in its decadence has carried the logic of individualism to the extreme of a war of all against all, the pursuit of happiness to the dead end of a narcissistic preoccupation with the self. Um, and he says that this competitive individualism has replaced economic man, but is itself a way of life that is dying. So you have this idea of the narcissist as the psychological man of our times, the final product of bourgeois individualism. And then he writes, and this is a longer quote, so you have to steel yourself to to listen to this one. The new narcissist is haunted not by guilt, but by anxiety. He seeks not to inflict his own certainties on others, but to find a meaning in life. Liberated from... You can't just do that after every two sentences say, that's you, George. I mean, it might or might not be true, but (laughs) you should come up with a more original (laughs) intervention. So he seeks to uh, inflict his own... So he, he seeks not to inflict his own certainties on others, but to find a meaning in life. Liberated from the superstitions of the past, he doubts even the reality of his own existence. Superficially relaxed and tolerant, you know, having his shirt off while, while podcasting, for example. He, that's not in the lash. Um, he finds little use for dogmas of racial and ethnic purity, but at the same time forfeits the security of group loyalties and regards everyone as a rival for the favours conferred by a paternalistic state. And he continues... And I'll just I'll just finish this and then we can we can discuss this portrait. His sexual attitudes are permissive rather than puritanical, even though his emancipation from ancient taboos brings him no sexual peace. Fiercely competitive in his sexual peace, George. Fiercely competitive in his demand for approval and acclaim. He distrusts competition because he associates it unconsciously with an unbridled urge to destroy. 
Hence, he repudiates the competitive ideologies that flourished at an earlier stage of capitalist development and distrusts even their limited expression in sports and games. He extols, for example, football. I mean, he, you, you shouldn't be anti-football unless it's what he's saying. Um, Lash continues, he extols cooperation and teamwork while harboring deeply antisocial impulses. He praises respect for rules and regulations in the secret belief that they do not apply to himself. Acquisitive in the sense that his cravings have no limits, he does not accumulate goods and provisions against the future in the manner of the acquisitive individualist of 19th century political, political economy, but demands immediate gratification and lives in a state of restless, perpetually unsatisfied desire. So there you go. It's, it's, it's a pretty picture. Do we find, do, does this seem mm, applicable to today? I guess that's what, the, the main question. What are your perpetually unsatisfied desires? Well, I think the idea would be that you have a, I mean, that's one of the uh, no, understandings of desire. What are your perpetually unsatisfied desires? Not to get fucking 20 interruptions and questions every time I'm trying to make a point. <laughs> good, good answer. <laughs> All right, that's, fair enough. that's perpetually unsatisfied. But maybe I want it to be unsatisfied. Oh, there's there's all kind. Don't want to delve into that too much, I guess. Um, yeah, I think that's that's one of the understandings of desire, isn't it? That it's um it's it is it's a lack. It's you know going to be perpetually unsatisfied. But I mean, I I, I guess I highlighted this packet uh, this um, passage because I thought it was um, I was just like yeah, just kind of that that seems to to resonate. That seems to describe a certain um, a certain facet of of modern life which i don't know really if there's another um portrait of this acuity that i've that i can um remember in, in social theory there are some some um i think in the same tradition some other social theorists who have some really interesting things to say but this is a i think a really good um picture no absolutely um and it is like a kind of a, a psychoanalytic um summary of the kind of pmc individual and unnerving in some ways because, you know, I mean, I know people exactly like this. The permissive sexual attitudes, even though they seem to find no kind of um, you know, sexual kind of uh, satisfaction. Um, the kind of uh, the cooperation and teamwork, despite being antisocial. Uh, I mean, you know, I don't want to name names. Um, but um, yeah, it's like it's... Uh, Working in PMC world does not require you to uh, to use your imagination to identify this kind of individual. But you don't I have to be a, a narcissist to work here, but it helps. Sorry, yeah. Alex, go on. But I, I think it's important that we know that it's not just a critique of the PMC, although, you know, Lash does discuss the sort of professional managerial class. Um, a lot of his sketches contrast um, the kind of corporate corporate class uh, as opposed to the old property class and um, the old bourgeois. Um, but that it's a, he, he insists right from the beginning that this is something that is a pathology of society as a whole. And he says, you know, if you think that this is just something that you, you criticize, you know, your middle-class colleagues for, just imagine what it's like in the ghettos. It's even worse. You know, the war of all against all has already been something which is, which has been a feature of life um, in, in the ghetto, you know, the, the term he specifically uses, um, for a long time, and that it's now entering the world of, uh, you know, of white middle class people. Um, obviously, that's a very American characterization of it, but it, I think it applies more broadly anyway. So I think that's, a, that's the first point. Um, the second point is that what the, the quotes that uh, the citations that George has pulled out are useful in reminding us that 
what we often understand, I guess, in, in popular discourse as individualism is, can mean very different things and has meant many different things across history. Uh, I think the common sense understanding is that individualism either means naked self-interest, acquisitiveness, um, uh, putting, you know, putting number one first, um, you know, in this high, highly competitive uh, society, or it's self-indulgent. You know, maybe that's a slightly more sophisticated understanding uh, that it's self-indulgent, that individualism is all about making yourself feel good, but through self-exploration rather than through, uh, through competition. So it's inwardly focused rather than outwardly focused. But in fact, as, as um, last charts, American capitalism from the Puritans onwards has gone through several phases of what maybe individualism means. And so, you know, you have the Puritans for whom it's hard work, but hard work, not with an expectation of material recompense, but of contribution to the neighborhood. So it's much more socially kind of directed. Um, and it goes through several phases. And, you know, by the time you get to the late 19th century, it's much more about just work really hard and, and acquire money, right? Build up piles of money, like, um, like, Oh, what's the duck? The cartoon Scrooge duck? McDuck. Scrooge McDuck. Yeah, that's what I was looking for. I know. Um, a real I knew you were figure. not thinking of an actual rational miser, but of <laughs> of a duck who who jumps into swimming pools full yeah. of gold coins. Um, but then you know you get a different you get a different um, individualism with the organization man in the early twentieth century. Um, and but but you know what Lash is talking about is then a transition where that self interested person, the, the acquisitive self-interested person becomes um, maybe more what we would identify as narcissist or when what he identifies as narcissistic, which um, is much more, I guess, more deracinated than any of the previous figures. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, actually, that it's individualism is often uh, reduced to selfishness, but that's not, it isn't a straightforward selfishness. In fact, it's often a turning away from like interests in one sense that characterizes the progressive managerial class and a, and a, all these other sorts of things, which all those contradictions about simultaneous <laughs> extolling of cooperation and teamwork whilst being deeply antisocial. So there is something a, a lot more complicated than just a, an egotistic sort of me first um, ism. I think, I mean, it's also, you know, it's he also makes the point that this is the kind of the problematic personality structure of a particular phase in modernity and that you know in the he contrasts this kind of personality which george has just um uh, summarized from and quoted to the kind of the typical um, kind of neurotic repressed um viennese bourgeois that would uh, turn up in freud's office and so he's making the point that um different um you know different social structures um, conform to different kinds of um, personality structure and to different kinds of um, pathology. And so it's a widespread, you know, you'd recognize many of the traits, um, even if it doesn't kind of completely, it, though they won't kind of uh, stretch to cover every person in the population. Um, and it wouldn't, um, it wouldn't account for every, cover the entirety of uh, most individuals, um, but nonetheless is kind of a distinctive, recognizable type and paradigm of personality in this, in the particular context of the late 20th century, early 21st. Yeah, definitely. Um, I guess we've sort of covered this a little, but just to, maybe to check we're all on the same page. Who are we talking about here? Who is this... Um, who are these these new narcissists? Is it is it just 
it, our, our members of the PMC, the the truest, uh, the apotheosis, the the, the, the most um, the most um, the clearest expression of this. But it's actually something which everybody feels um, a, a, a pull towards. Yeah, I think it, I think that's a, that's that is the point that it's a diagnosis of of a character structure which is a tendency across society, and so. You know, again, to take Phil's example, it's not someone going into Freud with compulsive hand washing and other um, pathologies and neuroses emerging from sexual repression, because now sexual repression isn't the, the main way in which your character is formed. You know, it's actually sexual permissiveness is is much more prevalent. So it is something that's across society. Now, you can think of, you know, particular uh, people or characters who exemplify contemporary narcissism more and more clearly than everyone else. But I think the point is that it's something that affects everybody that, for example, the desire for the, the inability to really find pleasure in work and your small things and to want um, admiration, right? Not just respect, but from others, but admiration is something that we all have. And certainly anybody who's on social media wants in some sense to get recognition for what, Likes, for what you've to done. To get retweets. To get retweets. To get follows. Exactly. But, you know, so so I think there is a, it, it's something that is a diagnosis of society and, and we can't just be like, oh, those PMCs or those liberals, um, because I think that would be a way of escaping the thoroughgoingness of, of, of Lash's critique, that it's about society as a whole. It's about something that contemporary capitalism, that late capitalism, capitalism since the 1960s, uh, however you want to characterize it, uh, is something that, that affects us all, that it's, um, yeah. Yeah. So we can't talk about the, the, the moat in the PMC's eye. I mean, look, if, if you want the, to, the beam in our own. No, right. And it, it, and like, of course you can say, you know, when I'm thinking of the, the narcissist and reading this, I'm thinking it's the Hannah Horvath character in girls, um, written and played by, um, um, Lena Dunham. Lena Dunham. I, I actually looked it up <laughs> before recording this and I still forgot. Um, and, you know, she's a, she's a perfect example. I think there's a scene where she's like, where someone calls her a narcissist. She's like, I can't be a narcissist. I hate myself, <laughs> which is exactly the point. <laughs> she's a voice of, um, of a voice of a, generation. A, a voice of her generation. Uh, but yeah. I mean, I think that is just an unbelievably good show as well. Although I can't tell it's, if it's amazingly well, well, I can't tell if it's amazingly well observed or if it's or, or if she just by accident, <laughs> by accident you have, stumbles on this. I don't know. You have four characters and it's really a genuine discussion. Which one is the least uh, least likable is Marnie is the least likable, but they're all in their own way uh, quite unlikable. But um, yeah, I guess the are there any limitations to this? Though? Sorry, I don't want to ask these questions in a too um, didactic way, but this is like the. I guess one of the appeals of this sort of social psychology is that you you see a portrait like this and you're like, oh, yep, that describes people that I know. Tick, tick, tick. This is, you know, this is this is really, um, you know, illustrating something where it has some sort of resonance that that means that, that it's instantly appealing and convincing. But there are some limitations, right? You can't you can't mass diagnose um, a whole society of individuals with a specific pathology. Yes, but I think, the, and this is a really important bit, I unfortunately wasn't able to find the passage, but I'll try to summarize, um, that Lash addresses quite you don't, you don't have to. You don't have to read it out. I can, I can read things out and you, you can, can do the reading. Can, I can, um, yeah. um, but it, it's extemporize. that, I mean, the point is that this is not social psychology. It's not group psychology because groups 
have their own dynamics and the the kind of collective unconscious of them uh, to to the extent that such a thing exists um, ha- follows its own its own determinations. The, what what Lash points out is that psychoanalysis is at its strongest and it as its most revealing when it focuses just on the individual and just on the clinical setting and really drills down on that. And only through that is it then able to shed light on society as a whole, not by diagnosing society, but by showing that the particular, you know, character and personality structures of, of the individual um, are something that are, are at the end of the day, socially determined. And they're socially determined because it's through the intermediary of the family that social patterns get reproduced in personality. So social, or this actually is a quote, I think, social arrangements live on in the individual, buried in the unconscious. Um, and so it's that process through which um, individual psychology is socially determined. And, and again, so it's, the idea is not that you take your kind of psychoanalytic tools and go and diagnose society, um, diagnose all individuals in society, but that in examining certain, tenden- certain tendencies or through the through the clinical diagnosis that it sheds that then light on, on certain social processes and social transformations. Mm, you might put it psychoanalysis is strongest when it focuses just on the individual. Only then does it. That's shed what I said. That's, that is, that's what social. I said. That's what I said right so at not, the start. Those are the exact words I mean, that I said. That it seems like we, we probably agree. Then. Are you just reading my um, notes? Is this what, is this what's going no. on? <laughs> you're trying to steal my point after <laughs> I've said it. This, you're just owning yourself here. I'm trying to I'm trying to sum up in in words that you you might use. But it, <laughs> <laughs> so it's um, kind of like a it's kind of like a personality type that is unable to recognize the contribution of other people. Right. That isn't right. able to separate themselves from others. What might you call that kind of personality type? No idea. Never met anybody like that. Doesn't doesn't um, apply to me Just or look in the mirror, at all. Mate. Look in the mirror. Um, <laughs> I mean, being on Zoom all the time, it's basically looking in the, in the mirror. All, That's a good the, point. It is bloody yeah. time. It's too much. Um, but actually, one question which which I didn't really, which we've kind of skirted around a little bit, but it might be good to focus in more, focus in on, is what what causes this? Like we've talked about the exhaustion of of certain sort of society, and then the personality type that it creates characteristically or the pathological um structure that it seems to generate but what's the you know there's some intermediate steps there what i mean what is it that really causes this this contradictory um psychological figure well i mean uh lash attributes it to various things the kind of transformation of the nature of work uh, the rise and spread of um complex kind of bureaucratic organizations changing familial patterns um, and the changing structure of authority um, in uh, post-war in post-war America, as well as the, some of the elements we've already mentioned, such as inflation, and in the 1970s at least, um, kind of rising crime, and the fear and insecurity that this provoked um, in American in the American middle classes as well. Yeah, I think that's right, and I mean the tendency, of course, would be like, well, you know, the the real cause is capitalism, but I think not to use capitalism as an explanation, but as a as a way of saying that the rise of the narcissistic personality is a product of a certain stage of capitalism. And I think that is what Lash tries to do, that it's not that this is the worst pathology that there's ever been or something, you know, and, I, and in the early 20th century, at the turn of the century, 
whatever the the pathologies emerging from repression uh, would have been seen as like a terrible thing and an indictment of capitalism. Um, maybe Freud didn't exactly see it in those terms, but but the, you know, but but certainly certainly someone like Wilhelm Reich who takes a more Marxist approach to Freud definitely does. And so it's not like that you know this that things were fine before narcissism, um, but it's just that this is the 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 progress in in quotation marks the, the advance of of capitalism and so the advance of alienation the advance of for example the breakdown of the family the breakdown of traditional authority structures breeds this new forms of uh new new pathologies and i think that's the yeah yeah no i think that's a really way to put it don't worry i went i went i won't attempt to summarize that particular point i think <laughs> very very well very well <laughs> expressed but i think just to link it to the um Todd McGowan uh, discussion that we had um I think there is something here about the collapse of authority so you have this this situation of a collapse of structure of authority without individuals being able to replace them themselves therefore you find this situation where rules aren't held to apply but there's no alternative source of authority and so individuals are in this really contradictory position turning inwards remaining unsatisfied and also unfulfilled by what's out there um and I think this you know this you know, to, to repeat this point, but I think it's just the, probably the one that really stuck with me about this contradictions of, of selfhood under the sort of society that we're living in at the moment. Um, it's so Lash says narcissists may have paid more attention to their own needs than to those of others, but self-love and self-aggrandizement did not impress me as their most important characteristics. These qualities implied a strong, stable sense of selfhood, whereas narcissists suffered, suffered from a feeling of inauthenticity and inner emptiness they found it difficult to make connection with the world. So it's not just a case of, um, I think that's, that is the contemporary expression of alienation. And it is, um, you know, and it is a, it is a, um, a step forward uh, in the, in one sense of the sorts of pathologies that a contradictory society like capitalism does, does generate. Um, so to, to flip it around a little bit and the third theme escaping the culture of narcissism um how are we gonna how are we gonna solve this problem guys we all agree this is bad what are we gonna do we can Just you know let's quick, brainstorm solutions yeah we've got 10 minutes i think we can knock this on the head so we want um can low I suggest cost, technology? High impact. Yeah, I think yeah. I think there's an app write, for this, definitely. I'll write that on a post-it note and put that up on on the yeah. on the whiteboard and we can see if we can get past that. Um but yeah, so Lash returns to this to the book in an essay published in 1990 and included in an afterword in some editions, including one that I have. Um with the 80s of course having just finished and arguably having proved him right in some senses in deepening a number of these trends. Um, I think it's an interesting reflection and picks up a number of the themes of the book and also that we've discussed already. Um, but what I wanted to touch on was what we can or should do to combat and escape this culture of narcissism and what's, I guess, what's blocking that escape. We've touched on this a little bit. Um, social media, obviously Lash doesn't talk about this directly, um, but he does note that the society of the spectacle encourages a preoccupation with the self. Is it too simple now to say we live in culture of narcissism 2.0 due to internet? I don't even know if it's 2.0. I mean, it's just an acceleration. 3.0. No, <laughs> it's an acceleration and intensification of the same thing. I mean, does, does it, is it at a new stage? 
not according not according to Lash. I mean, you read Lash and you think if you just changed some of the words and dropped in the word social media, you wouldn't actually have to change any of the diagnosis, right? So all it means is that it's more generalized, perhaps, um, across broader swathes of society and is more intense. Uh, I, I don't know. Like, I, I, it almost feels banal discussing social media in reference to this because it's so obviously yeah. that it's so obviously the object of that diagnosis that I don't know what else could be said. Well, I mean, no. Lash himself was um, populist um, and also even petty bourgeois by his own kind of admission in terms of the way yeah. um, kind of small scale communal life, um, the appeal and the benefits of um, of kind of uh, close knit of a kind of um, the haven provided by the family and by private life. Um, so there's a, there is a, a kind of a depoliticizing or an anti-political turn Um or you know within with it as part of Lash's own solution, and uh, kind of a populist uh, kind of Jeffersonian in response to remote haughty um, technocratic liberal elites as the political um, the political front of that. So and neither of those things I think um, you know neither of those things are sufficient solutions um, to the uh, to the to the problems identified by Lash requires, I think, I mean, I suppose perhaps this is, this is perhaps one way in which we can be confident in that there is a difference is I think that the, you know, Lash writes in the context of the exhaustion of left-wing and socialist ideas. So he writes in the kind of context of saying that those attempts to transform the context have failed and therefore we have to find other kinds of solutions. And I think it's, we, you know, we're on the opposite end of that process and we've found that those other solutions have also failed. Um, and so it seems to me that we're forced back into considering um, radical and systemic changes to the overall kind of context, to the large bureaucratic social structures, um, the lack of control that people feel in so many dimensions of their life, that those are the, those are indeed the kinds of problems we have to think about addressing and for which we need to find solutions precisely mm the thing that Lash eschewed, it seems to me we're forced back to think about them again. Yeah, I think um, you mentioned bureaucracy and actually just to come back on onto that in a, in a sec, I think this is, you know, it's <clears throat> a, 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 essentially a cultural response to a cultural problem, um, I think is, is at this point in time is, is destined to fail. I think the, the you see this in, in some, I guess, contemporary accounts of, of the left I'm, I'm thinking of of maybe of paul Embry's book um, despised which is you know well worth a read um the you know what what's the risk to to um to a society like this you have a uh, one role of or one route of kind of rediscovering a sense of civic obligation a kind of uh, looks for some some things which can give an anchoring to the individual can give some some meaning and some stability but I think it's ultimately a, a directly political response, something around a politics of control, a politics of of essentially taking responsibility for the um, the political and economic and social structures which create this and looking to transform them. And that's something which can't be done except through fairly sustained um, focus on on the levers of power and on, on control itself. But yeah, to, to go back to this idea of, of um, bureaucracy, what's, we live in a very 
bureaucratic um, moment. What is just maybe to un- unpack this a little bit? What's this? What's the role of bureaucracy in reinforcing this culture of narcissism? Because I think this is something which isn't perhaps immediately immediately clear intuitively. So I, I mean, I th- it's interesting because I think the discussion of bureaucracy was probably more prevalent in the nineteen seventies. Uh, you know, at the kind of peak of, of welfare state and the confidence in the welfare state. I mean, already then, um, probably the confidence of the, in the welfare state had been exhausted to a certain degree. But it was, um, you know, I think it, it was still much more prevalent than in today's times, precisely because, you know, he writes it, as I said right at the beginning, on the eve of the neoliberal assault on welfare state bureaucracy, um, which, of course, doesn't mean that it went away. Um, it's just that it maybe rather transformed. Um, it became, you know, and I think probably know the, the British case more than the American case, but, you know, became increasingly um, means tested, increasingly demanding, increasingly punitive uh, in a way that the welfare state in the 60s and 70s hadn't been. Um, the, so the, the thing about, so I, I, I have a feeling like we talk less about bureaucracy and talk less about it than we should, perhaps just because it's become so ingrained in our lives that it's not something that we encounter when we try to seek out social services, for example. I mean, that we do as well. But I mean, it's, it's encountered, it's so ingrained in our lives because in all corpor- you know, corporations, the private sector is incredibly bureaucratized. Um, you know, Mark Fisher calls um, market Stalinism, I, I believe, or privatized Stalinism, market Stalinism. Market Stalinism. Uh, yeah, where uh, kind of bureaucratically set targets are have come in into into all kind of large organizations uh, even you know market-based ones so i feel like we talk less about it and and because we maybe bought the neoliberal idea that bureaucracy was pushed back it was it was um it was kind of rolled back you know through through neoliberalism i think that where do you find people arguing against bureaucracy i mean the left doesn't and i think that's a big uh, problem for the left that it doesn't talk about bureaucracy well um Petty I would, board, I would maybe, say there's a reason for that. There's a reason well, for that, and that's often yeah. that people that the left is um, composed in many ways of people who have a particular expertise at navigating and negotiating bureaucracies. It's part of their their professional life, and not, you know, not, not not only that, but social policy is going to be is gonna, social policy is going to be implemented by you know the kind of progressive wing of the bureaucracy um which you know that which last characterizes the new paternalism and so they're going to be the people that's how you're going to make society a better place that's how progressivism um manifests itself through bureaucracy so they, they don't criticize it there so where so where's criticism of bureaucracy coming from today Cons- petty bourgeois conservatives which don't really get get kind of short shrift from from wider society but you know that kind of complaint ah it's so much red tape blah 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 which you'll find in the pages of tabloids and so on, but I don't think it has that much purchase. Um, and maybe maybe among Silicon Valley, right? The, and, and kind of adherence to the kind of new big tech ideology, which is that, you know, some new app is going to come in and cut away the red tape. And, you know, even taxis before, you know, have minimum prices, have all these kind of bureaucratic structures. And, you know, Uber is going to come in and, and get past that. Of course, that yeah. The idea that Silicon Valley doesn't bring with it its own new forms of bureaucracy would be, I think, fanciful. It very much does. Yeah, it's very, it's very carefully constructed, an, an ideology of ease. And you know, are you are you uh, bored of having to call up your pizza place to get your pizza delivered? Well, you can. There's an app for that. You know, there's an app for absolutely everything, which just 
anything resembling bureaucracy or having to interact with people with rules with systems of rules to to get things that's no that's that's no bueno that's not not required um and sorry guess, just, to, just to jump in on the yeah. bureaucracy point is that he he makes the point that unlike what weber thought that it would lead to rationalization that um, the move from personal dependence, personal dependence on, um, you know, a boss, the, the the authoritarian parent, and so on. That the move from to the the modernization of society, which would become more bureaucratic, would rationalize society. Um, Lash points out that it increases dependence. So you have increasing dependence on bureaucracy, and you know the this, the chapters on parenting, um, on the role of expertise, are are good examples of this or rather feature good examples of, of the way that bureaucratic dependence or our dependency on bureaucracies has increased. Mm. I mean, there's, there's a lot here to, to cover in this book. Um, we have quite a few listener questions also to, to address as well. Um, unless there's any, any final comments, anything that you didn't get to, to chuck in that you want to, you want to throw in there. Well, there was a thing about you know political solutions, but I think one of the questions is also about political solutions. So maybe we'll we'll deal it with yeah. we'll deal with it when we come to the listener questions. Yeah, we 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 do have a question, which is uh, cool. what what are we going to do? So what uh, what is to be done? So we have a listener question first up. Um, <clears throat> So this is a private message that we won't, we won't mention um, this person's name. Um, they write, I was introduced to Lash through the Backlash episode and I bought the book shortly afterwards to follow on from there, although I enjoyed it. Um, I find it to be exemplary, exemplary of a wider body of work that demonstrates a certain porosity between Freudian and Marxist concepts. With my limited understanding of these two thinkers, it's never seemed to make sense that there is so much crossover between the two schools of thought um, because I have a general concept of Marx being scientific and Freud being unscientific. How am I mistaken? So we have a, a listener here who's asking for us to, to correct their misconceptions. Um, I wish I could, I wish I, I wish I were uh, educated enough to be able to answer that in a convincing fashion. Um, I guess I, I can give Well, you can answer little... it in an unconvincing fashion if you, if you'd <laughs> like. Um, I mean, I think that there's, one interesting link between the two, and, and like I'm, I'm someone who's come to Freud very recently uh, in life, and which has kind of blown my mind. Um, and uh, I mean, the reading reading Freud um, and reading Freudians, and it's something like, wow, why did I neglect it for so long? Why did I neglect these insights? Because I thought it was because I basically bought all um, the bullshit slander against Freud that it was unscientific, that it was. Um, outdated that it had been overcome that it had been that it and indeed that it was implicated in uh, the culture of narcissism and therapy culture and that therefore engagement with Freud would be an indulgence in kind of uh, in narcissism and in in, a, in indulgence in the, in the interiority in the self and so on when it's precisely the opposite I mean Freud is precisely an engagement is highly rationalist. It's an, it's an attempt of recognizing the vulnerabilities that we have, but overcoming them and not an indulgence uh, in vulnerability in the way that a lot of therapy, kind of therapy, contemporary therapy culture has it. So I think there's that. The other thing, which, which um, to make a call back to the previous reading club, which we did on Todd McGowan's book on Hegel, um, where he avails himself of Freud as a way of explaining Hegel. Now, okay, a lot of, lot of names, a lot of one guy explaining something else, what is this actually about? The point is that like the, 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 
notion of contradiction is something that is essential to them, that you have certain tendencies pulling one way, which run against what you consciously feel, you know, that's something in, in Freud, but which is something that's in Hegel and something that Marx takes from Hegel. So I think that's something that definitely unifies them of, of understanding the nature of reality as itself contradictory. Um, but, you know, I think it, just to answer the, this, this, uh, this person's question, or at least maybe point in a direction which would be more useful than what I'm doing. You know, there are many Freudo-Marxists from, from the early part of the 20th century. I mentioned Wilhelm Reich already, who tries to perform a synthesis of these two. So maybe that's a good place to, to go next. I'd say, I mean, I would add to what Alex has said. I mean, what's striking is that both are thinkers who are um, who's both claim to be doing science in a very particular way, and both have been um, uh, called into question for being uh, for being unscientific. So both have kind of suffered one of the grand, you know, one of the kind of grandest um, counter assaults um, is challenging the scientific credibility of both of both Marx and Freud. And you know that was the famous thing that Karl Popper the great kind of the granddaddy of Cold War liberalism did in making his case for what is what is scientific was precisely cast against both Freud and Marx and um, Hay um, Friedrich von Hayek, the granddaddy of neoliberalism also, or daddy, the big daddy of neoliberalism also made the case that surpassing Freud and Marx was um, something was the kind of great task that he aspired to, going past them and seeing them both as unscientific and with nothing to give. So I don't think, I mean, you know, I think they're... Um, it is uh, common to castigate both for being unscientific. So um, it's, you know, if, uh, as I suppose, um, to say, uh, you know, to say frequently the same people who criticize Marx for being unscientific are the people who criticize Freud for being unscientific. So I suppose it's, um, my response would be that, the, you know, it requires us, I suppose, to revise what we mean by science. And to try and understand um, what the kinds of tasks Marx and Freud are engaged in. Yeah, no, I think that's that's nicely put. No need to go and read um, Popper. Open Society is a long, bad book. Um, so we have another question here. Um, <clears throat> again, um, private message. So we won't we won't um, mention this person's name. It also had some mystique this way, I think. Um, so here it does. It could be anybody. I mean, you don't know. It could be ourselves. We, we know. Ventriloquizing our listeners. Oh, <laughs> no, they're, this, they're real um, They are real people, unlike, unlike us. Um, so is Lash ultimately a pessimist? Does he believe that there is no way of doing away with dark drives? Or does he believe there is an alternative like Firestone? Um, Julemith Firestone, who believed that the dismantling of the family would allow for the formation of healthier personality type. What do we what do we make of, of this one? I mean, I don't you know, I can't say I've got great I've got uh, great familiarity with Firestone, but the notion that the dismantling of the family would allow for the formation of a healthier personality type, at least in, um, you know, kind of in capitalism is a deeply creepy idea. Yeah. Um, and I wouldn't say I mean, I don't think he's a pessimist. Um, or rather, I would say I don't think it's pessimistic to imagine that we can't do away with dark drives. Um, you know, I mean, the point as a Freudian is to is to raise is to raise kind of unconscious impulses to consciousness. Where um, you know Freud's famous thing, where it is ego shall be, which is to say the kind of the expansion of the of um, of self conscious control over the primitive and the infantile and the um, 
the submerged and the unconscious. So I don't think that's doing away with dark drives, but certainly, um, you know, certainly as far as Lash is following Freud, he's offering the, the, he's offering the hope of um, the possibility of greater self-control. Um, so, I mean, I wouldn't yeah. say he's a pessimist. Yeah, I, I, agree, I agree with that. I think the, the, there's references also throughout, you know, to um, maybe healthier ways of, of dealing with the drives in, in terms of, so, I mean, one, one way of thinking about it, and which is a very contemporary discussion, is that we're not allowed to hate in contemporary society. Um, and so all our aggressive impulses don't really have- I hate that. Don't have, I do hate that. Uh, don't really have any productive outlet. Um, and that's a that's a problem that we encounter today. And so, what happens when though when that kind of natural aggression is is channeled? It's channeled inward. It it reoccurs um, through the superego as a dominating superego, which is telling you you know your shit, your your you know, and then uh, induces feelings of of self loathing. And so that's you know that's one contemporary manifestation. And that doesn't that isn't um, un unsuperable. You know, it's something that we can overcome. Um, as and I so I agree with what Phil just said there. We shall overcome. Um, no, I think I think that's you know just to just to go back to the point that we, I think we were drawing out at the beginning of the discussion. The <clears throat> way to understand this specific pathology is as um, historically specific to a certain sort of society, and that means that there is, I mean, there is a, a pessimism and an optimism at the same time in that sort of construction because it means that the the job of of overturning um, <clears throat> this sort of situation requires a, a change in society which is no small um no small task but it's it's not an impossibility well, it's, this, um, so- it's this quote um you know that um it is from lash it is through love and work that we exchange crippling emotional conflict for ordinary unhappiness and that is um yeah that is kind of like you know that's a classically freudian claim right that that's neurosis paraphrasing freud precisely yeah, it's yeah. paraphrasing freud that um unhappiness is substituted for neurosis and it's interesting because it's um you know it doesn't seem particularly um ambitious the idea of aspiring to unhappiness um but it's striking again you know like how how different it is to psychologists today um you know kind of um which is you know if you think of cognitive behavioral psychology is all based around managing people's pathologies and problems and coming up with kind of little techniques to try and get through all of these crippling um, anxieties and issues that they suffer. Whereas Freud aspired to abolish them, um, to come kind of to, to replace it with just ordinary unhappiness. And so I think mm. it's, um, it's worth drawing out how, what, you know, appears as kind of what appears as something fairly um, modest in terms of the way in which Freud formulated his own understanding of um, psychoanalysis is so vastly more ambitious than the kinds of psychological solutions that are offered to um, to people suffering today. Yeah, no, yeah. I think that's a really a really nice way to to put it, and that that idea that you have meaning <clears throat> rather than happiness or a certain mental state. I mean, for Freud, you know, love, work cocaine you know that's that's what meant he <laughs> had a need. meaningful productive uh, life scientific one as well alex did you have but, but, something well i think a there's, a, there's, a, there's a political point to this as well which is as lash notes early on that there's been perhaps even a long-term pathology on the left even amongst the old left right before the narcissistic turn before the new left um of trying to resolve your personal issues or ignoring your personal issues through political work and that that's, that can be problematic because 
it's a way of not really confronting your the the problems of your interior personal life. Um, You're talking but, from personal experience, right there. <laughs> no, no, I'm far too narcissistic for that. Um, <laughs> I just go straight to the individual. No, but the 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 the, the point is that. I think it's also wrong to try to think that you can resolve these neuroses through political activity and indeed through political accomplishment. I mean, through, through even through revolution that, you know, that they will not, that, that changing society won't make you suddenly happy and that our contemporary societies demand that you always be happy and that the instruments that it uses for that. So, for example, positive psychology and all this idea that, you know, you should be feeling happy and that people feel constantly inadequate because they're not feeling happy um, is that's a, that's a real problem that won't be solved either. So I, there's probably two kind of narcissistic approaches to politics. One is that you think that politics will make everyone happy and that it will resolve all these things, or even worse that you just deliberately the, that the process of political activity becomes completely about self-realization rather than the achievement of social external political goals. Um, yeah. And, and so just, to, but just to conclude that, just conclude the point there is that, you know, socialism won't make everyone happy, but it might reduce a lot of the pathologies and neuroses and transform them into ordinary unhappiness. I think that's an important point to bear in mind. Mm, yeah. I, I, I agree with that conclusion. Socialism will make you unhappy. And, um, that's why it's good. Um, that's basically what, what you were saying. Um, well, you're going to stop being feeling crazy and and tossed and turned and whatever, and just be like, yeah, okay, things aren't things aren't great, but this is just the normal setting of of life, and you can confront uh, the real conditions of life with sober senses, you know. So that's something to look forward to. Definitely. Um, so, final question: What and a, and a practical one? What insights left wing political projects does this does this book? provide if we're reading this for for the purposes of action what what do we take away from it my way of approaching this is that to, to try to find what lash suggests if at all through the book so i mean in in the preface he notes that there's been a flight from politics uh which may signify citizens growing unwillingness to take part in the political system as a consumer of prefabricated spectacles this is not a retreat from politics but the beginnings of a general political revolt now, Lash was wrong, just flat out wrong, because what was happening then was a retreat with from politics and that, yes, maybe people were sick of prefabricated spectacles, but there was no alternative. This is, you know, depoliticization. This is the withdrawal from politics. Um, so I, and, and, you know, which we've discussed uh, at length and across, you know, so many of our podcasts. Um, so I think he was wrong there in that presaging a revolt. Um, maybe we can see certain kind of populist uprising and various kind of forms of anti-politics today as ways of, uh, of actually revolting against prefabricated spectacles. But the problem is, is that so much of populist politics is itself a prefabricated spectacle. So that isn't breaking through um, the culture of narcissism either. Uh, I think I suppose. The, yeah, go on. Yeah, go on. Well, I was going to say, I mean, I suppose, you know, I mean, I, I think, you know, um, what Alex says is right. I mean, I guess I would add to it that the, what we, um, I suppose, you know, it doesn't, it's not really about kind of identify some problems with um, the nature of politics in the 60s and 70s. In, well, I mean, some significant problems. It doesn't offer political solutions. Um, that's not what he's seeking to do. But the, 
it does show the problems with the kind of the ways in which people try to evade um, or to find kind of solutions and meanings in various kind of social and cultural activities where they won't find them. Um, so, I mean, I would take that from, from Lash um, and that the particular, the kinds of, to identify the kinds of activities that might appear to be radical or um, uh, have the character of protest, but are in fact deeply in conformity with the underlying kind of uh, social structures and the type of society that, um, that we live in. So that's what I would take in terms of the, what are the political insights of, um, of the book? I think there's one other thing where I, I thought it might be interesting to look at the very last paragraph at the very end of the book, um, where he says something which is a bit slightly cryptic, but I think we can discern what it is. Um, he last talks about the discipline, the discipline of the work ethic um, and, it, and the way that it endures. Um, no, the work ethic, he's, he's um, careful to point out, is a discipline independent of the defense of property. So we don't need to take work um, at least according to Lash, you don't need to take the work ethic as merely just a way of that capitalism makes us put our nose to the grindstone for profit, for their profit, um, but that it's a, an ethic which is a, maybe a humanistic one. So anyway, the discipline of uh, the work ethic endures most of all in those who knew the old order only as a broken promise, yet who took the promise more seriously than those who merely took it for granted. So who, who is he talking about there and what does that mean? Uh, my understanding is that he's talking about those, uh, the yeomanry, maybe independent artisans, uh, a, a kind of, you know, small petty bourgeoisie who really genuinely believed in the work ethic, didn't maybe gain that much from it um, because they felt that despite how hard they worked, they didn't really ever become capitalists. Um, they didn't really get the recompense for their hard work, but nevertheless um, took the promise more seriously than those who merely took it for granted. Um, and so it's it's those people which Lash sees as um, maybe being the last uh, holdouts from the culture of narcissism, people who aren't working to be seen, to be admired, to put their work up on social media, to get retweets, uh, you know, people like us, um, but people who are just happy to find love and work in their own little corner of the world um, and just ex experience pleasure, satisfaction, that takes satisfaction from the fact they've done their work and done it well. And that's it. It doesn't need to be anything grander than that. You know, no grand illusions of, of narcissism. Now, that, again, would be the kind of independent artisan, right? The, or maybe kind of yeomanry, um, which capitalism has, you know, or was already wearing down and eliminating at the time the last was writing. And, has, has, and that process has only continued. So I don't think that one can draw resources from that kind of yeomanry anymore today. What are you talking about? Like, I, you know, like you can follow my like Kickstarter and like, you know, I've got like the stuff that I'm selling in yeah, my yeah, Instagram Yeah, your Etsy. Shop. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but I mean, that, any, rather any... Proves a, that rather proves a point, right? I mean, that, 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 that yeomanry doesn't exist. And it's interesting that like to, to think of someone else who talks about this group as a, as a sort of, as a kind of tragic hero of capitalism. Um, Joel Kotkin, who we interviewed for the Calibunga series, for example, um, also talks about them. I think there is a kind of, from this kind of culturally conservative critics of capitalism, 
um, of which there's a couple, uh, all seize on this figure as the kind of as their kind of archetype of of who's still good in society, I guess. So what? So your your suggestion is sort of make the yeomanry great again, like look to them. Well, no, for because they're being they're, they're, they're political being, they, solutions. No, because they're being they're being quashed by monopoly capitalism and now increasingly by you know silicon valley capital as well which is coming in and um you know automating or turning algorithms into to what they used to previously do or trying to network independent producers through um through these systems so i mean that's no longer that's no longer a solution i i think i don't i don't think we can still rely on this kind of like small c conservative you know petty bourgeoisie to kind of pull us out of this yeah no, I think um, my answer to this question is that I think there is going to be um, something of, of real interest in in that, I guess, yeah, as, as, as we examined previously, culturally conservative critics of capitalism, the kind of the idea that there is a political project potentially to be to be made, which allies kind of, what is it, left, left wing on economics, right wing on culture. And this is going to be one formulation not, not, of it. And to right see... Not even right wing on culture. So I mean, you know, just just basically maybe neutral, not on, on liberal, liberal, not progressive, yeah. or just or just yeah. maybe traditionally liberal. You know, socially liberal, yeah. but not um, radically liberal. And, and yeah, and I think this is a project which, even though I I don't know if we would necessarily fully sign up to, I think a lot of people will dismiss it, um, and I think they're they're wrong to to dismiss it and wrong not to see that they're is a value and an appeal and something fundamentally correct about, I mean, it's the old idea that you can't really be a, a true conservative unless you're, unless you're anti-capitalist because capitalism is the, the most um, progressive disruptive historical force seen heretofore. Um, but I think that's, that's probably good and good and plenty for, um, for today. Unless, unless either of you have any final observations, final thoughts to, to, to chuck in. I mean, no. desire, desire is infinite, but um, this will be satisfaction. I, I feel ordinarily um, <laughs> happy, ordinarily happy right now. Well, I feel, yeah, I mean, yeah, satisfaction. Oh, and. Um, so I just wanted to say yeah, one so, thing to close to close off, if that's all right. Um, yeah. That this question of uh, culturally conservative critics of capitalism, a question was addressed to us uh, about this specifically, a kind of critical question, which we'll be discussing, and we'll probably have quite a lot to say on it. Um, so we'll probably discuss it at length at, in the next Alpha Bonus Bonus episode, which will be coming out, I think, sometime in December. Um, yeah, it'll be one of the, our last episodes of the year. So maybe we can also reflect on what's happened in 2020. Uh, nothing. Uh, <laughs> and um, uh, and that's it. And just to tell you what we'll be discussing next, uh, just to take this opportunity, um, we will be discussing... Um, where, I can... Where, I can... I can. We will be discussing. Sorry, we'll ideas. be discussing Wolfgang Strick's Black. Uh, book that we. So we had we interviewed Wolfgang Strick, and we're going to be discussing his book. It's a book of essays, um, in obviously in more depth in the next reading club, which will be out uh, a long way away. Actually, it'll be only out in kind of early early mid January. Um, so there's plenty of time to read that, and then shortly after that, there'll be uh, Richard Tuck's book on the left case for Brexit. But anyway, so you have your whole holidays uh, to read those two books. Uh, I hope you enjoy, and so we'll catch you up with the next reading club in the new year. Uh, 2021 is going to be fucking great. Onwards and upwards. Mm-hmm.